Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers. The Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the Season 9 Special. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that honey never spoils because of its low water content and acidity? Archaeologists have found pots of honey in ancient Egyptian tombs that are over 3,000 years old and still perfectly edible. Not sure I'd fancy that on a slice of toast myself, but that's just me. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. The pride of Yorkshire is its people, who are known for their warmth, grit and good sense. That was said by Michael Palin. This case was suggested by listeners Alfie Turton and Taylor, who requested it via a review and Instagram, respectively. We're in more than one location this week, and some of them we've visited before, so rather than go over some random facts about the locations, I'm just going to drop some in here and there as I go through the story. This episode focuses on the stories of the 13 innocent women, whose names are too often forgotten, who each lost their lives at the hands of Peter Sutcliffe, who many knew as the Yorkshire Ripper. Those women were Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Patricia Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Jean Jordan, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Richter, Vera Millward, Josephine Whittaker, Barbara Leach, Marguerite Walls and Jacqueline Hill. This two-part episode is dedicated to their memory. This is a story I've been putting off doing for quite a while now. When I recorded my episode last week with Lorraine, I mentioned to her how this case felt different to some of the other notorious serial killer cases I've covered. I think part of the reason is because this one is so close to home. I obviously don't mean I was involved in any way or knew anybody involved in this case. What I mean is the murders took place in the surrounding areas that are close to my life. As you all know, I live in Leeds, and the majority of these murders occurred in Leeds, specifically in places such as Roundair and Chapeltown, the former of which is where I used to live, and the latter I've driven through hundreds of times. Originally, though, I'm from Huddersfield, which is where one of the murders took place. Because I know most, if not all, of the locations in this episode, all of the Huddersfield and Leeds ones anyway, I think that's why I found it so hard to research, and why I wanted to make sure that I'm focusing on remembering the victims rather than discussing too much about the killer. That wanker has had far too much airtime as it is, so I won't be indulging his infamy further. I will provide a brief background regarding him at the start, but that'll be it. This will be a two-part episode, as all my specials are. In this first part, I'll explore the lives of Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, 
Patricia Atkinson, Jane MacDonald and Jean Jordan. Next week I'll do the same with Yvonne Pearson, Helen Richter, Vera Millward, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach, Marguerite Walls and Jacqueline Hill. You'll notice I've called this two-part series The Forgotten Thirteen. The reason for that is because the 13 innocent women who lost their lives at the hands of Sutcliffe were just that, innocent women. Now, if I were to ask 100 people what the real name of the Yorkshire Ripper was, the chances are that 99 would quickly say Peter Sutcliffe. If I were to ask the same 100 people the names of the 13 women he killed, what are the chances anyone would be able to name them all? This series is my attempt at helping remember those women and their lives, whilst highlighting the truly shocking police work carried out by West Yorkshire Police in particular. Let me first take you back to the 1970s, a decade characterised by various factors, including industrial decline, unemployment and strikes. The 70s saw a decline in traditional heavy industries such as coal mining, steel manufacturing and shipbuilding, which had been the backbone of Northern England's economy. That decline led to widespread job losses resulting in high unemployment rates, particularly in areas heavily reliant on manufacturing. Trade unions played a prominent role in the 70s, with significant strikes occurring in the aforementioned industries. Miners picketed power stations in an effort to restrict coal supply, leading to nationwide blackouts. Currency decimalisation was introduced in 1971, replacing the UK's old system of pounds, shillings and pence with a decimal-based system we still use to this day. Leeds United, the football team here, won the now-defunct European Fairs Cup on away goals that same year and won their second First Division title in the 1973-74 Football League season. The Yorkshire Ripper murders occurred between 1975 and 1980 in Leeds, Bradford, Huddersfield and Halifax. Our villain, Peter Sutcliffe, targeted and killed women and teenagers in a similar fashion to that of the late 19th century serial killer Jack the Ripper, hence his moniker. Sutcliffe's crimes instilled fear and terror in the community and the investigation to catch him became one of the largest in British criminal history. The fear generated by the murders caused a significant change in the behaviour of women in the North. Many avoided going out alone at night due to the fear of becoming Sutcliffe's next target. The case also highlighted societal issues such as the vulnerability of sex workers, victim blaming and the perception of violence against women. The Yorkshire Ripper case had a lasting impact on the criminal justice system in the UK. It led to reforms in how police investigations are conducted and improved the handling of serial killer cases. This is a humongous case and I'll be honest there will be parts that I've left out of this two-part series. Time constraints and not wanting to split the episode into potentially 10 parts has led to me structuring this story in a way that makes it easily digestible and accessible for my listeners. I urge you to conduct more research if you'd like to learn more about this story, but it's one of the deepest rabbit holes you can go down. You have been warned. Here's a brief background on Peter Sutcliffe. He was born in Bingley, a town in the city of Bradford, on June 2nd, 1946, to his parents John and Kathleen Sutcliffe. One of six children, he left school at the age of 15 and took on various jobs, including working in a factory and as a grave digger, before eventually becoming a lorry driver, which is the role he had whilst he carried out the Yorkshire Ripper murders. He worked at Clark Transport. Sutcliffe met Sonia Zerma, I want to say, Zerma, Zerma, the 16-year-old daughter of Czechoslovakian immigrants living in Bradford at a pub disco on February 14th, 1967. 
Sutcliffe was 20 when they met, and they would go on to marry on August 10th, 1974, which also marks Sonia's 24th birthday. Not much is known about his wife, nothing concrete anyway. The couple didn't have any children because they were unable to, with many people coming up with theories as to why. That's something I won't be speculating about. Just over 12 months after they tied the knot, Sutcliffe would commence his five-year-long killing spree until he was finally captured in early 1981. I'm getting way ahead of myself, though. The first person I'd like to introduce to you this week is Wilma Mary Newlands, one of ten children born to Scottish parents George and Betsy Newlands, who were originally from Orkney, off the north coast of Scotland. Wilma was born on July 1st, 1947, in Dumbarton, in West Dumbartonshire, and had six brothers and three sisters. Her parents would go on to live in the city of Inverness in the Scottish Highlands, so it's possible she was in fact born there, but my sources indicate that Dumbarton is correct. At some point in her life, Wilma made a move south of the border and ended up living in a council house on Scott Hall Avenue in the Chapeltown area of Leeds. Chapeltown is known for its diverse and multicultural community, whilst also being the place where the city's annual West Indian Carnival is held. Wilma married a man called Gerald McCann, hence she is more commonly known as Wilma McCann, but they subsequently divorced in around 1973. Before they separated, the pair welcomed four children to the world, Sonia, the eldest, Richard, Donna and Angela, the youngest. Wilma was a private woman who preferred to keep to herself rather than go out of her way to, say, become best friends with her neighbours, for example. Family meant everything to her but with minimal guidance regarding decision-making, Wilma unfortunately ended up on the receiving end of an abusive partner who would end up going to prison for six months after breaking her jaw. On October 29, 1975, Wilma placed Sonia in charge of her siblings after saying goodnight to each of her children at around 7.30pm. Heading out, Wilma was spotted later drinking in a few local establishments, including the Regent, the White Swan and the Royal Oak, the latter of which she was seen leaving just after half nine. A club called Room at the Top is where Wilma finished her night out. She left at around 1am and headed back home on foot. At the same time, Sutcliffe just so happened to be on the prowl in the centre of Leeds and spotted Wilma walking alone. He claimed her thumb was extended in a hitchhiking gesture, so he offered her a lift, and she accepted. Heading back towards Scott Hall Avenue, the car stopped close to Prince Philip Playing Fields, also known as Scott Hall Playing Fields, an area of grassland a couple of hundred yards away from Wilma's home. Just as a heads up, I will be quoting Sutcliffe throughout this two-part series. Here is what he had to say about Wilma McCann. That was the incident that started it all off. I saw this woman thumbing a lift where the Weatherby Road branches to the right but you can carry straight on. I stopped and asked her how far she was going. She said something about did I want business and said that it would cost a fiver. She told me where to park the car. I had a toolbox on the back seat of the car and I took a hammer out of it. I then hit her with the hammer on her head. I took a knife out of the toolbox and stabbed her at least four times, once in the throat. After I'd stabbed her, I went back to the car and drove away towards Leeds. He's downplaying the brutality of his attack massively there. Wilma McCann was stabbed a total of 15 times with the knife after being struck with the hammer. The attack occurred at around 1.30am, half an hour or so after she left the nightclub. Sutcliffe also alludes to Wilma being a sex worker, which simply wasn't true. It's possible that he thought she was a sex worker, given she was walking alone in the early hours and reportedly thumbing for a lift, but that's where the similarities stop. 
Police officers shared that view with Sutcliffe that Wilmer was just a sex worker and therefore her death was essentially overlooked at that point. Sex workers were often subject to social judgment and negative stereotypes. They were typically regarded as being immoral and were associated with criminal activity. They were, without question, some of society's most vulnerable people. As day broke on October 30th, the children grew concerned that their mother had not yet returned home. Led by their eldest sibling, Wilma's four kids headed towards a nearby bus stop which they knew their mum often used in the hope she would soon turn up. Across the way at Prince Philip playing fields, milkman Alan Routledge was doing his morning rounds accompanied by his ten-year-old brother Paul. It was young Paul who came to the realisation that what they found that morning was the body of a woman. The discovery of Wilma's body led to a murder investigation involving around 150 police officers, tracker dogs and 11,000 interviews being conducted. One newspaper report mentioned how the police wanted a lorry driver to come forward as Wilma was seen talking to one shortly before she was killed. In all likelihood, the lorry driver in question was Peter Sutcliffe. Sonia Newlands, Wilma's eldest child, was so traumatised by what had happened to her mum that she took her own life after suffering from depression and alcoholism for decades. Her death came on December 19, 2007, less than a week before Christmas. Emily Monica Jackson was born in Leeds on March 30th, either 1932 or 1933. There's a bit of discrepancy as to when she was born because 80% of the sources I use quoted her as being 42 when she died. Having said that, I also read that a year of birth was 1932, making her 43, but I'm getting bogged down in unnecessary details. Like Wilma, Emily was a mother of multiple children. Her eldest was 17-year-old Neil, the middle child was 10-year-old Christopher, and 7-year-old Angela completed the trio. Emily was married to a man named Sydney, and they lived at Back Green, a street in the Leeds suburb of Cherwell. Sydney was a roofer by trade and took on odd jobs in the local area as a contractor. Emily acted as Sydney's driver because the family patriarch didn't drive. She also helped her husband with his invoices, but one income was simply not enough to support the family. After a period of stress onset by the family's financial problems, Emily decided, after speaking to Sydney about it and getting his blessing, that she would earn some extra income by becoming a part-time sex worker. The couple would head to local pubs and, once there, Emily would attempt to find a client while Sydney waited patiently at the bar. One of the couple's preferred establishments was the Gaiety, a so-called former super pub located on Roundy Road in the area of Hare Hills. Hare Hills has a pretty poor reputation and is known as being one of the most impoverished areas of Leeds. It's always in the top 10 areas of the city with the highest crime rates, so many of the doors and windows on the houses in Hare Hills have security bars on them, akin to those in prison cells. The Gaiety was where Emily and Sidney Jackson headed on the evening of January 20th, 1976, after leaving their home at around 6pm. An hour or so later, Emily had decided to leave her husband to it and head outside in an attempt to find a client. As he did so often, Sutcliffe was cruising around the city's red light areas and spotted Emily outside the infamous pub. They agreed on a price of £5, around 46 quid in today's money, after which Emily entered the vehicle. Heading for the city centre, Sutcliffe parked up near some derelict buildings by Manor Street Industrial Estate just off Enfield Terrace. Emily grew concerned when Sutcliffe informed her that the car would not start up, which was nothing more than a ploy to get her distracted and out of the car. 
As the ever-so-helpful Emily withdrew her lighter and leaned over the car's exposed bonnet, she wanted to try and help Sutcliffe see better, she was struck on the head twice with a hammer. She was then subjected to an attack with a crosshead screwdriver, which saw her stabbed a total of 52 times all over her body. In one last act of cruelty that only served to remove any remaining shred of dignity, Sutcliffe retrieved a piece of scrap wood from the abandoned yard he had parked in and forced it between Emily's legs. He then stamped on her thighs so hard that an imprint of his boot was left on it before scarpering back home to Bradford. Sutcliffe said in his confession, I drove to Leeds looking for a prostitute because I felt I could not justify what I had done previously and I felt an inner compulsion to kill a prostitute. I saw a woman trying to stop drivers from the pavement on the road that leads to Weatherby Road. I stopped and she got in the car. I remember turning on the ignition again so that the red warning light came on and pretended that the car would not start. We both got out of the car. I lifted up the bonnet of the car. I had picked up a hammer which I had put near my seat for that purpose. I told her I could not see properly without a torch. She offered to use her cigarette lighter to shine under the bonnet. I took a couple of steps back and I hit her over the head with the hammer. I then made sure she was dead by taking a screwdriver and stabbing her repeatedly. Emily's body was found the following morning just after 8am by a man on his way to work. He'd taken a shortcut down an alley which is where he stumbled across the body of Emily. The boot impression on her thigh was soon identified as belonging to a UK size 7 Dunlop Warwick Wellington boot. Close by, in some sand on the industrial estate, was an identical boot print. Given the proximity of Emily's murder, it was quickly linked to Wilma McCann's, with the police's next move being to reach out to the local sex worker community to ask if they had seen or heard anything regarding either murder. One lead the police followed was that the potential killer had an Irish accent, which we know is not true, but it's something they held onto for a good while based on testimony from the locals. Strangely, Neil, Emily's eldest child, has since explained that he and his two siblings were each placed with different family members and did not see or hear from each other ever again. In 2020, Neil said in an interview, When it first happened, all the family, my brother and sister, were all split up. We haven't spoken in 40 odd years. What a truly saddening quote that is. It just reinforces the fact that the children and family members of the Forgotten Thirteen should also be classed as victims of the Yorkshire Ripper. The story will continue after these quick messages. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And now, back to the story. Irene Richardson was born in Glasgow on March 28, 1948. Glasgow was where she called home whilst growing up, but she would soon relocate to the English seaside town of Blackpool before finally setting in Chapeltown, Leeds. Once married with three kids, Irene was recently divorced at the point she enters our timeline. The 28-year-old lived at Cowper Street for a period, but would eventually be forced to live on the streets of Leeds after losing the majority of her money. She did her best to earn a living as a cleaner, but the wages she received were not lucrative enough to allow her to rent a place she could call home. Irene was reportedly spending most of her evenings in public toilets to protect herself from the harsh winter elements. 
On the odd occasion, she could afford to stay in what's known as a rooming house, a place that houses multiple tenants that share facilities, so the place on Cowper Street may have been such an establishment. On the evening of February 5th, 1977, Irene headed out at around 11.15pm, with her intended destination being Tiffany's, a nightclub located upstairs in the Merrion Centre. One source said she had made it as far as the Gaty pub, which is where Sutcliffe spotted her, as he had Emily Jackson a year earlier. Irene soon entered Sutcliffe's white Ford Corsair and was driven to Soldier's Field, an area of Roundy Park where an annual firework display and bonfire are held in November. I've always wanted to know why it was called Soldier's Field. Apparently it's because it was the gathering place for army troops in the First World War. Once there, Irene exited the car to use the public toilets but was frustrated to discover that they were closed. As she went about finding a place to relieve herself on the grass, Sutcliffe, who was already armed with a hammer, struck her three times in the head before slashing her with a Stanley knife he'd hidden in a pocket. Sutcliffe said, I drove to Leeds after the pub shut. It was my intention to find a prostitute to make it one more less. I saw this girl walking in some cross streets in the middle of the Vice Estate near a big club. I stopped my car and she got in without me saying a word. She told me where to drive and we came to this big field. She wanted to use the toilets, so she got out and went over to them. She came back and said they were locked. By this time, I was out of the car and I had my hammer in my hand. As she was crouching down, I hit her on the head from behind, at least twice, maybe three times. I then lifted up her clothes and slashed her in the lower abdomen and also slashed her throat. By this time, prostitutes became an obsession with me and I couldn't stop myself. It was like some sort of a drug. The attack was eerily similar to that on Marcella Claxton, a 20-year-old Chapel Town resident who Sutcliffe attempted to murder on May 9th, 1976, months after killing Emily Jackson. Marcella was walking home in the early hours after attending a party when Sutcliffe spotted her and stopped his car. Marcella insists that she was not soliciting, but admits she did ask Sutcliffe for a lift home. Driving her to Soldier's Field, Sutcliffe is said to have offered her a fiver to have sex with him on the grass, an offer Marcella point-blank refused. She did get out of the car as she needed the toilet, and in a frighteningly similar chain of events, she was struck on the head with a hammer around nine times by Sutcliffe. Marcella states that he then proceeded to masturbate while standing over her body before shoving a fiver in her hand and asking her not to report him to the police. He then drove away at speed. For whatever reason, the police didn't take Marcella's report seriously, despite her needing complex brain surgery and receiving over 50 stitches. The police were given a detailed description of Sutcliffe, from his Yorkshire accent to his recognisable beard, but the police didn't believe it was linked to the Ripper murders because Marcella was not a sex worker. Go figure. Detective Chief Superintendent James Hobson is even on record saying, We have an open mind on this girl's story. An open mind. How reassuring. Ultimately, the attack on Marcella would remain unlinked to Sutcliffe until after he was arrested and confessed to the attack. If we bring the story back to Irene Richardson, her body was found by the sports pavilion in Roundy Park at around half seven in the morning on February 6th by local jogger John Bolton. Her murder was slightly different to the others. Sutcliffe took his time arranging her clothes and body. His confidence was clearly growing. He was still a bit sloppy upon leaving the scene though, as tyre marks made by his Ford Corsair were left on the grass as he sped away. Another huge piece of evidence that ultimately led to nothing. Then again, it didn't help that Sutcliffe changed his cars regularly to delay his inevitable capture. 
I only know the story of one of Irene Richardson's children, and it is a bizarre one. Jeff Beatty was put up for adoption by Irene when he was just a baby, so he never knew his birth mother. He only realised that his mum had been killed by Sutcliffe when he decided to research his family's history when he was in his mid-thirties. Irene died when Jeff was seven, and he has since gone on record stating that he believes Irene did the right thing by putting him up for adoption. The next person I'd like to introduce is Patricia Atkinson, who was affectionately known to those close to her as Tina. Born on July 9th, 1944 in Bradford, Patricia lived in the city's Manningham area, which appears to have the lowest life expectancy rates in the Bradford district for both men and women. Over half of the houses in Manningham are terraced and over a third are flats. I'm not saying this to slag the place off, I'm just highlighting how a lot of the Forgotten 13 had similar backgrounds and were living in deprived areas of their respective cities. It speaks as to why those who chose to perhaps felt compelled to earn extra income as sex workers because they ultimately had little to no choice. A mother of three, Patricia perhaps wasn't as concerned as the women living in Leeds because the murders had all occurred there rather than in the neighbouring city of Bradford. Living on her own in a flat at number 9 Oak Avenue, Patricia enjoyed going out and having a few drinks in the local pubs, one of which was the Carlisle. On April 23rd, 1977, just over two months after Irene Richardson was murdered, Patricia headed first for the Perseverance, another pub, before ending up at the Carlisle, the latter of which just being a short distance from her flat. Leaving the Carlisle at around half ten, Patricia was planning on heading to the International Pub, but it doesn't appear as though she made it that far before Sutcliffe spotted her from his car. Taking advantage of an intoxicated Patricia, Sutcliffe offered her a lift home. She accepted. As they arrived at 9 Oak Avenue shortly after 11pm, Sutcliffe waited for Patricia to get out before quickly reaching under his seat and removing a hammer, which he kept hidden. Unlocking the door of flat 3, Patricia hung up her coat, as did Sutcliffe. Moments later, she was struck on the back of the head with the hammer four times, incapacitating her. Further strikes and slashes occurred, leaving Patricia's body badly cut and bruised. To ensure he had completed what he set out to do, Sutcliffe then proceeded to stab Patricia in her stomach and back several times. Before leaving for his home in Clayton, a village in Bradford, Sutcliffe covered Patricia's body with the bedsheet. Arriving home, he noticed he was essentially covered in Patricia's blood. He attempted to remove the evidence by rinsing his jeans in the sink and wiping his boots clean. I read that he cleaned the hammer and discarded it by throwing it into an industrial building's grounds. It was then used as a daily hammer by the unknowing groundsman who retrieved it. Patricia's body was discovered on the evening of April 24th by her friend Robert Henderson. He'd popped round to see Patricia and let himself in when no one came to the door and he realised it was unlocked. Sloppy Sutcliffe had worn the same size 7 Dunlop Warwick Wellington boots that he'd worn when he killed Emily Jackson. A clear boot print was left on the bedsheet in Patricia's blood and a match was made. That confirmed that these series of murders were linked and were likely committed by the same person. The killer's range had expanded into Bradford and it wouldn't stop there. Patricia's was the only murder committed indoors also, which I found interesting. One wonders if Sutcliffe felt it was riskier to commit his crimes inside due to the possibility of witnesses seeing him and the chances of leaving traces behind being greater. Sutcliffe said of Patricia's murder, I saw this woman in St Paul's Road at a junction with another road. I knew this was a prostitute area. I pulled up to her and stopped, and without me asking, she jumped in the car. She told me where to go. I parked up outside her flat, and she got out and went in. 
I picked up a hammer and as I got out of the car, I followed her into the flat and hung my coat on the hook on the back of the door. She took her coat off and sat on the bed. Her back was slightly towards me. I went up to her and hit her on the back of the head with the hammer. When she was on the floor, I hit her another twice or three times before I put her on the bed. I pulled her clothes up and I hit her several times on her stomach and back with the claw part of the hammer. I drove home and put my car in the garage. I carried on as though nothing had happened. Here's where the story takes its first major turn. You might think that's an outrageous thing to say given what I've discussed so far, but it's what George Oldfield and his mob thought. George Oldfield led the murder investigation. 16-year-old Jane MacDonald was born on August 16, 1960 in Leeds and grew up with her parents Wilfred and Irene in Chapeltown. The family just so happened to live six houses down from Wilma McCann, which is nothing but a coincidence. Jane was very much an outgoing teenager whose confidence shone through wherever she went. Her lust for life and bright smile made her popular with her peers. She regularly attended disco nights due to her love of dancing and also enjoyed rollerblading. Her family described her as a happy-go-lucky young woman who enjoyed every waking moment of her fun-filled life. Having recently finished secondary school, Jane took on the role of a shop assistant at Grandways, a former Leeds supermarket with the slogan, Serve Yourself and Save. On the evening of June 25th, 1977, Jane had gone out with some friends to a German-themed bar called Hofbrauhaus in the centre of Leeds. It sounds like a beer keller type of place based on my research, and speaking of which, I came across the following comment by someone on a Facebook group called Yorkshire Ripper, the Beast of Bingley. The comment reads, We were there that night on the 25th of June. I'd just turned 18. I saw Jane. I remember she was wearing a kilt that I really admired. We went round to Cinderella's nightclub and I looked after my friend's bags whilst they went off and danced. A guy came and chatted me up, asked if I'd go back to his place and listen to some good music. When my friend arrived back at our table, he made an excuse and said he'd be back in a minute. He never came back. It turned out, he was Sutcliffe. He was hunting for a kill that night, and it was a few hours between talking to me and the last sighting of Jane. That night, Jane had met an 18-year-old lad by the name of Mark Jones. They shared a dance, perhaps to the sound of a Bavarian umpire band, and spent the evening together until they parted ways at around 1.30am. They had made their way to a field near St. Jimmy's Hospital and it was at the main gates of the building where they parted company after promising to meet up again soon. After failing to secure a taxi at a rank due to it being shut, Jane was left with no other option but to walk home on her own through some of the city's most dangerous streets. Sutcliffe spotted her not long after 2am as she was walking along Chapeltown Road. She was only a few hundred yards from her home at that point. Incorrectly believing her to be a sex worker, Sutcliffe followed her and waited until she was in a secluded enough area for him to pounce without raising an alarm. Jane was struck on the back of the head with a hammer before being struck twice more and stabbed repeatedly. Her body was left near Reginald Playground on Reginald Street, just off Chapeltown Road, where she was soon discovered later that morning by some young children who had gone there to play. Jane hadn't even been drinking on the night she was killed, which just shows how responsible she was and that she was more than capable of having a good time without drinking. This latest murder attracted national newspapers and was a huge story given the age of Jane and her portrayal by the police as being the Ripper's first innocent victim. They actually said that. The first four women killed by Sutcliffe were not deemed innocent because they were all thought of as sex workers, which as we know wasn't the case. 
George Oldfield even addressed the serial murderer, who was at that point known as the Shadows Maniac, as well as the Ripper, on TV, and said, There may be more pawns in this war before I catch you, but I will catch you. Wilma, Irene and Patricia were seen as nothing more than dispensable pawns in a murderous game of chess. Many consider the killing of Jane to have been Sutcliffe's first major mistake as it brought national attention to the case, rather than it being confined to the regional newspapers of West Yorkshire. It's sad to think that it took him killing a 16-year-old for it to be taken more seriously when he'd already killed four women and attacked five others. One of those five others was Marcella Claxton, who I mentioned earlier. The other four were as follows. Tracy Brown, who Sutcliffe attacked with a hammer on August 27th, 1975 in Silsden, Bradford. Olive Smelt, who he attacked with a hammer on August 15th, 1975 in Halifax, West Yorkshire. Anne Rogulski, who he attacked with a hammer on July 5th, 1975 in Keithley, Bradford. And an unnamed woman, who he attacked with a stone placed inside a sock in September 1969 in Bradford. Each of those four women survived, and it's worth pointing out that they are the first four known attacks of Sutcliffe prior to Wilma McCann. There may well have been more that we don't know about, and never will. The same logic applies to the number of women he murdered, I suppose, which is an horrific thought. Bringing the story back to Jane, another abhorrent quote from George Oldfield is as follows. There are striking similarities between the five murders, and with the exception of Jane, who was the youngest victim, and who appears to have been perfectly respectable, the others were somewhat older and can be described as good time girls. It makes you wonder, if Sutcliffe hadn't killed Jane, would the police have continued to not really give a shit about the other women and the ones that followed? That's another disturbing question to ponder. Sutcliffe said in his confession regarding Jane's murder, I believed at the time I did it that she was a prostitute. At this time the urge to kill prostitutes was very strong and I had gone out of my mind. I saw this lass walking towards the crossing near the Hayfield pub in Chapeltown Road. I drove my car into the car park and got out. I took my hammer out of the car. I also had a knife with me that time. I walked behind her and followed her for a short distance. She never looked round. I took the hammer and I hit her on the back of the head and she fell down. I hit her another once at least, maybe twice, on the head and stabbed her several times with a knife in the chest. Before this, I stabbed her in the back. Marcella Claxton then came forward once more with a detailed description of the man who attacked her as she believed it was the same person who killed Jane. A clairvoyant called Alfred Cartwright was even drafted in by the police. That's how desperate and clueless they were regarding his identity. Alfred said, He is an ordinary working man, about 28 to 30, who lives in Bradford. In four weeks' time he will strike again in the Chapeltown area of Leeds, but then he will be caught. His prediction was an educated guess given the previous murders, but Sutcliffe would strike again in half of the predicted time and he wouldn't be caught. He struck two weeks later in the city he called home, Bradford. Maureen Long was his target, a 42-year-old woman living in Leeds who was in Bradford for a night out on July 9th. In the early hours of the following morning, Maureen was offered a lift by Sutcliffe with the pair ending up on a secluded street. Sutcliffe proceeded to attack Maureen with a hammer before stabbing her multiple times and leaving her for dead. To his astonishment, Maureen somehow managed to survive the attack, but her memory was so affected by the blows she received that she inaccurately described her attacker to the police, which allowed Sutcliffe to breathe a huge sigh of relief. The last person I want to introduce to you in this first part is Jean Bernadette Jordan, 
a 20-year-old woman born in the North Lanarkshire town of Motherwell on December 11th, 1956. Referred to as Jean Royal in most of the old newspapers I used for my research, Jean was a young mother of two living with her husband Alan in Hume, Manchester, an inner city area with a historical reputation for social deprivation and crime owing to failed urban planning. Jean had some personal battles that she struggled with, including her suffering with depression, thought to have been brought on by having two kids at such a young age and living where she did. She would sometimes leave the house at Lingbeck Crescent unexpectedly and head for Motherwell to see her family, something which Alan had grown accustomed to. Described as having a nervous disposition by her husband, Jean earned a bit of money through sex work as it was a common way of earning money in the area at the time. On October 1st, 1977, Jean left the house out of the blue for one of two reasons. The first was to go on a walk and get some fresh air, the other was to earn some cash as a sex worker. I'm unsure which story is true because various sources said different things, but the key takeaway is that she left the house alone that night at around 9pm. Sutcliffe just so happened to be driving around Moss Side and spotted Jean talking to another potential client. Changing her mind at the last minute, she decided to go and speak to Sutcliffe instead. There are so many what-ifs in this story, aren't there? Agreeing on a price of £5, Jean got into Sutcliffe's car and directed him to a former allotment on Wasteland close to the Southern Cemetery in Manchester. For a bit of context before I continue, Sutcliffe had recently explored Manchester with the Barker brothers, Ronnie and David, his close mates, so he knew the red light areas of the city well. As Jean got out of the car, Sutcliffe followed her with a hammer in his hand and proceeded to strike her with it a total of 11 times. Spotting an oncoming car's headlights in the distance, Sutcliffe disappeared sharpish, but suddenly remembered on the drive home that he'd forgotten to retrieve the fiver he'd given Jean. That note would become one of the case's most notorious pieces of evidence, as it was a newly minted note, having only been released into circulation on September 27th by a bank in Shipley. Sutcliffe received it in his wage packet two days before killing Jean, so he was concerned about its traceability. He'd recently moved into a new home with Sonia at Garden Lane in Heaton, Bradford on September 26th, ironically a day before the fiver was released into circulation, and had hosted a housewarming party on October 9th. He would later use that story as his alibi, when in reality he'd ventured over the Pennines to Manchester after dropping off some of his guests. After searching Jean's body and the surrounding area, Sutcliffe was at a loss as to where the fiver was, which sent him into a blinding rage. He began to mutilate Jean's body with a knife and a sharp glass shard he'd found on the allotment before finally attempting and failing to decapitate her. Jean was stabbed 18 times all over her body during that second attack. Her body was found the next day around 10.30am by two men, one of whom was none other than a young Bruce Jones, who would go on to play Les Battersby in Coronation Street. She was soon identified by her husband Alan, who had contacted the police to say he thought the body found may be Jean's. Five days later, Jean's handbag was found by a member of the public. Inside was the £5 note. The handbag was missed during the initial police search as it was just outside the search area. Soon enough, police officers discovered the note, serial number AW51121565, had recently been one of many handed out to workers in their pay packets at one of 30 firms in the area employing over 8,000 men. Clark Transport was eventually narrowed down as being one of six businesses likely to have issued the note, which, believe it or not, led to Sutcliffe being questioned by the police on two separate occasions. 
He had alibis for both October 1st and October 9th, which were confirmed by Sonia, so he was let go on both occasions. Sutcliffe said of Jean's murder, I realised things were hotting up a bit in Leeds and Bradford. People had dubbed me the Ripper. I decided to go to Manchester to kill a prostitute. I pulled up at the curbside and asked a girl if she wanted business. She told me if I waited further along the road, she would meet me there. I drove at her direction until we came to an allotment. She got out of the car and headed for the greenhouse. I followed her and hit her over the head with the hammer. I hit her again and again on the head until the moaning stopped. And that concludes part one of this end of season special. I'll conclude the story in part two next Thursday. Thanks again Alfie Turton and Taylor for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts about it so far. If you're listening on Spotify, there's a section at the bottom where you can let me know your thoughts. I'm just going to read four new reviews this week as I appreciate this is a long episode. Colin left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Great Podcast. It reads, I drive a lot for work and look for a decent murder podcast as, like most listeners, I have a morbid fascination about how one human being can be so callous towards other human beings. Stuart's research to get so much info and detail into short episodes is brilliant. My own personal bugbear is I'm not keen on the interview episodes. Having said that, I can't justify dropping review points as some do like them. Keep up the good work. P.S. You did Joanna Dennehy. Just wondering if you could find any others in the Peterborough area. I'm sure there's loads, Colin. I'll probably come across another at some point. Steve Cook 942 left a five-star review on Podchaser that reads, Well-researched and well-presented. Charlotte Collins left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com title Great Podcast. It reads... Hi Stu, been meaning to message for a while, love the podcast. Found it difficult to find a true crime podcast that's easy to listen to, focuses on the important details of the case, but also doesn't ramble unnecessarily. You've nailed it. The way you lay your episodes out make it enjoyable to listen to. I've been slowly working my way through your episodes on the way to work since I stumbled across your channel a few months ago. I especially love the icebreakers and little segments at the start of each episode and the little intros your daughter recorded. Very cute. That being said, Please could I request the cases of Tia Sharp and Alice Gross. Thank you. I look forward to the next episode. I'll add them to my list, Charlotte, if they're not already on. I'll put your name against them if they are. And finally, Iona Embry left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Excellent Podcast. It reads, Absolutely love this podcast. Gets me through my shift every day. I love Stuart's voice. Very easy to listen to. I love the fact that they are British murder cases. Keep them coming. Thank you Colin, Steve, Charlotte and Iona for leaving the show such lovely reviews. If you want to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis, you can find the links to Patreon and buy me a coffee on my website. Thank you Heath for buying me three beers at buymeacoffee.com slash BritishMurders. The message left was, love to listen when out walking. Thank you and welcome to my latest Patreon member, Hayley Schofield. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out for your trouble. And that's it for part one. A mammoth episode. I appreciate you sticking with me this long. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.